Let's pray before we begin. And uh, there's one more request. As uh, you may have noticed, our sister Karen was not um, able to be here with us uh, this Sunday to read scripture. I wasn't given a specific reason, but um, it never hurts to pray. I think it's, it might be health related. So we'll lift her up as well. Holy Spirit, we pray that you open your word to us, and that you give us ears to hear and hearts to obey you, that you speak to us communally and individually, and that you be glorified in and through us, and we lift up our sister Karen to you, and whatever she uh, is, whatever she's dealing with, Lord, we pray that you walk alongside her in it, and if healing is needed, then we ask you for healing. We ask all these things to the glory of your name. Amen. Let's begin with some good news stories. We pray for a lot of tough things in the news. Here's some things I found this week. A woman stopped to help a mother in distress on the side of the road and called 911. And it was the call that foiled the kidnapping of that woman's daughters. An anonymous individual paid the fee for someone whose car was stolen and accidentally impounded. Yes, they still impounded the vehicle after it was recovered. But somebody else paid the fee for that individual to get it back. A man was waiting for the bus and witnessed a car wreck across the street from him and ran to it to pull the driver out of the burning vehicle. Two nurses and two EMTs who happened to be traveling through Midway saved a man who was having a heart attack in the airport by performing CPR and using a defibrillator. Aside from the action, or the kinds of action taken in all these stories, one thing they all have in common is that the headline described all of them as Good Samaritans. In today's passage, Jesus tells perhaps his most famous parable by that, by that title, The Good Samaritan. And it's famous enough that it continues to color our modern culture, even finding its way into the news regularly. There's Good Samaritan Hospital. There are religious organizations named after it. We'd, We've been asking for donations for Operation Christmas Child, which is run by Samaritan's Purse. It's even a legal term, referring to laws that protect people who help in emergencies from liability. But while it's often used to describe extraordinary interventions, the parable from which it comes is told to inform something very fundamental to the life of faith. And as we look at the story, we learn what Jesus has to say about something that's at the core of the identity of those who would follow him, those who would be his disciples. The scene that we find in this passage is not uncommon in the Gospels. People who were well-studied often ask Jesus questions, often to challenge him, and in this case, it's the person challenging him is, we're told, an expert in the law. He might be a teacher of the law, or he might even have more training than that. The point is, this man knows 
the law. He knows scripture, and he knows it well. There's some question as to whether or not he's being hostile in his approach. He may or may not have been. He could have just been curious. But he asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus turns the question, pointing to the law that this man knows so well. What's in the law? How do you read it? In another place where Jesus has asked this question, he answers similarly. He points to the commandments, the law, scripture. And the expert answers with two commands. Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And in other places in the Gospels, Jesus says that all the law and the prophets, essentially all of scripture, hangs on these two commands. Now, this conversation might sound a little strange to, especially to our modern evangelical ears. A couple things we need to understand. First is these, the expert and Jesus are not discussing works righteousness. They are not discussing earning salvation. That's not the point. It might, the, the, the way it's framed might sound weird to we who come out of traditions that very much emphasize that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, which is absolutely true. But they're talking about the life marked by faith. And they're also not talking about the afterlife. Or rather, I should say, they're not just talking about the afterlife. Eternal life, the way Jesus frames it is relationship with God, and it begins now. This is not so far from, actually, this is very much tied to Jesus' teaching on the kingdom, which is here now, which he brought with his ministry, and that we live in under his lordship now with the hope of it coming in its fullness when he returns. And so, whether the law expert has hostile motives or not, it kind of doesn't matter, because Luke makes it clear that the next question, it comes from a place of wanting to justify himself. And it's a question that I know I can relate to. And who is my neighbor? Jesus point, he says, he points to the affirmative. Do this and you will live. And who is my neighbor? Am I getting it right? Am I doing it right? Have I checked the box? We see similar concerns come from the disciples. Things like Peter asking, well, how many times do I have to forgive somebody? Let me make sure I have it down, technically. Now, the question, and who is my neighbor? The expected answer for most of Jesus' listeners would be someone from the community. In their case, a fellow Jew. The term, usual, the term neighbor usually conveys a sense of proximity. And Jesus' parable completely destroys that notion. It shows very much that a neighbor is defined by more 
than just proximity. And while many recognize the parable to show that there is no limit to who a neighbor is, and that is absolutely true, why doesn't Jesus just answer to that effect? This passage could be a lot shorter. And who is my neighbor? Everybody. But what's interesting is he doesn't answer it at a technical level. He answers it, but in such a way that the question changes as he answers it. He tells the story of a man who fell into the hands of robbers on, an, on a road that was notoriously dangerous. And the man is left half dead, the way Jesus describes it. Two men pass by on the other side of the road from the man, and a third helps him, cleaning his wounds, taking him to an inn, paying for his stay, and making provisions to cover for further expenses. But at the end of the story, Jesus changes the question to who was a neighbor? And the expert correctly identifies, well, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus instructs him to go and do likewise. Why does the question change? Let's look at the parable. As we take a closer look, we'll see why Jesus answers the way he does and what it tells us about how God views the concept of neighbor. In this week's parable, a significant detail is who Jesus puts in the parable. The variable in the story is who passes by the man who was attacked and what they do or what they don't do. And the first two characters, they serve the same function. They have in common that they are pious Jews who lead worship in the temple at Jerusalem. We have a priest and a Levite that pass by. First the priest, and then after the priest comes the Levite. And the, the Levites performed functions to assist the priests in worship who performed the sacrifices. Both of them know the law. They know scripture. They know the things that are being discussed in this conversation. As pious Jews, they likely recited the first commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength, at least twice a day. And they both pass by on the other side of the road. Both of these characters show us that faith is more than knowledge. It's quite possible they were either going to take their turn at serving in Jerusalem, they were on shifts, or coming back from doing so. They may have been concerned about maintaining ritual purity. But the way Jesus frames these two commands, they didn't do what the law they knew required them to do. Some would even argue that even at a technical level, there's enough in the law that would require them to stop and help. They miss the point in the midst of their piety. They might even miss the point because of their piety, or at least how they frame their piety, their faith. They illustrate the truth that James, the brother of our Lord, tells us 
in James chapter 2, verse 17, where he says that faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. It doesn't do anything. It does not help the one in need. Now, this is clear enough to Jesus' audience. As I said, they're not discussing earning salvation. They're talking about what the life of faith looks like. And faith is lived. At this point, the natural progression they would expect in the parable would be a lay person. We had a priest, we had a Levite. The, the progression of the hierarchy in Jesus' society, it would be priest, Levite, Israelite. And the next person to come is a Samaritan. And it is difficult to express how jarring this is to Jesus' audience. Even the way Luke writes it in the original language is emphatic. Luke is saying, and a Samaritan came. Samaritans and Jews had notoriously bad had a notoriously bad relationship for centuries. And it continued into Jesus' time. To the Jews, the Samaritans were seen as heretics. At best, half-breeds. Descendants of the people who were brought in by the Assyrian Empire to repopulate what was the the, the territory that the northern kingdom of Israel occupied after it was defeated by Assyria. And so, there's an account in 2 Kings 17 where, in response to a plague of lions, they bring priests to instruct them how to worship the Lord. Assyria brings back some priests to instruct them because it's thought that that's why the plague was happening. They didn't know how to worship the Lord. But they end up worshiping the Lord and the gods from the lands that they had been pulled from. That's who the Samaritans of Jesus' day are associated with. The Samaritans only accepted the first five books of the Hebrew Bible. The law proper, so to speak. They also disagreed with the Jews about the right place of worship. For them, it was on Mount Gerasim. For the Jews, it was the temple in Jerusalem. And through the centuries, there's a history of violence between these two groups. Even interfering with each other's worship. The temple on the Samaritan site had been destroyed by a Jewish king. Just a couple decades before Jesus tells this parable, Samaritans had desecrated the temple in Jerusalem by scattering bones throughout it, shutting it down for Passover. They don't like each other. We get a sense of the ethnic conflict. In just the previous chapter, when Jesus sets out for Jerusalem, And to get to Jerusalem from where Jesus is, he has to pass through Samaria, where the Samaritans are. And he approaches a Samaritan village. Now, Jews normally went around this territory. That's how much tension there was, even adding two to three days to the journey. And as he approaches and sends messengers to make preparations, it says, chapter 9, verse 53, But the people there did not welcome him, because he was heading for Jerusalem. When the disciples... James and John saw this. They asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them. 
Then he and his disciples went to another village. It's possible that James and John, who had seen the transfiguration a little earlier, might have been emboldened by the experience, but it is worth noting, this is not the first place Jesus was not welcome. Even shortly before, he's asked to leave the region of the Gerasenes because people are afraid. But the Samaritans are expendable. That's the degree to this conflict. Who are we wanting God's judgment to fall on? To contemporize, to put it in contemporary terms, James and John's request, who are we comfortable dropping bombs on? That's who the Samaritan represents. And it's a little difficult finding modern equivalents, not because there's not ethnic conflict, but at least officially, the enemies that at least our country recognizes tend to be ideological, or members of ideological groups, but that has not stopped people from vilifying our Muslim neighbors on this side of 9-11, or even just people of Middle Eastern descent. If this par- to draw a parallel, if this parable was told perhaps in the United States during World War II, the, the Samaritan might be Japanese or German. Negligent clergy is one thing. But an enemy who gets it right, a heretic that gets it right, that's the effect of the Samaritan in the passage. That's the effect when Luke says in verse 33, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. And that is the difference. The phrase, he took pity on him, It comes from a word that's also translated compassion. Both are correct. But it's a word that is often used to describe how Jesus feels about people right before he heals them. It's how Jesus felt about the crowds when he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. It's how Jesus felt about the people before He fed them by multiplying the loaves and fishes. He had compassion on them. The heretic in the passage, the Samaritan, invites us to have the same love that God has for those in need. Not the religious leaders. The Samaritan shows us that faith acts in love as a neighbor. Faith acts as a neighbor. The expert in the law wants to apply a boundary to his love. And it's simple to understand why. It's easier. It's easier to love people like me. And it's hard enough to love people like me The Samaritan as the one who gets it right 
destroys that and shows us that faith expresses itself in love that does not have boundaries to who and who does not qualify. Jesus has already said, love your enemies. But the Samaritan invites us to really consider who that is. And here's where it gets difficult. Because that's our natural human tendency, is to want to apply boundaries to our love. Which is why when Jesus says, love your enemies, he says, what good is it if you just love those who love you? Even the sinners do that. Using the term sinners for effect. Essentially, everybody does that. But following Jesus doesn't stop there. Because Jesus doesn't stop there. It's natural to want to stay, to keep our love confined to people like ourselves. And so we tend to find excuses to not have compassion on people. We may not express it out loud, although we may. But there's any number of ways we can do this to feel better about it. We might, I've said this before, we might blame the victim or justify the atrocity, which is often just another way of blaming the victim. Try to, we often try to find ways to say, this person had it coming. He shouldn't have been on that road. Everybody knows it's dangerous. Maybe he should have given the robbers what they asked for. Or maybe he shouldn't have been carrying so much money. He shouldn't have made himself a target. And we don't see the Samaritan qualify his love. There's some discussion as to whether or not he knows the man is Jewish. Given the setting, it's highly likely. He's not in Samaritan territory, so to speak. There's a good probability this is a Jewish man. But regardless, that's kind of beside the point because there is no qualifier. There's no boundary. And we often prefer to find ways to qualify our compassion or to disqualify people from our compassion. We hear about people in need or people to whom something happened and we may want to conduct an interview before allowing ourselves to love them. We might want to ask questions. Where are you from? What is your ethnicity? What's your religious practice? How'd you get in this country? Are you here legally? Are you rich? Are you poor? How did you become poor? Are you on drugs? Alcohol? Do you have a criminal background? What's your sexual orientation? Here's one for today's climate. Who'd you vote for? 
What are your political leanings? And if any answer to any of those questions makes us second guess having compassion on someone, we are missing what this parable is saying. Another thing we might try to do is redefine compassion. But we don't see the Samaritan say, well, I love this man enough to let him learn his lesson. He shows compassion in a way that looks out for the immediate interests of this man. And, and he does it at his own expense and at his own risk, at risk to himself. He's on the same road. He could be attacked. He could invite a dangerous misunderstanding by carrying a beaten and bloody Jewish man on his donkey in a territory where there are Jewish people. He might be mistaken for the assailant. And when he takes him to the inn, he gives generously. It's thought, views vary, but it's probably somewhere between a few nights stay to, a few we- to even a couple weeks. And he leaves the tab open. If he needs anything else, let me know, and I'll take care of it. I have a hard enough time picking up the checks sometimes when I know what the cost is. Now, the point is not to calculate the generosity of the Samaritan or the amount of risk and to try to duplicate it. Nor is this a call to be necessarily reckless. It's not to say there's not a level of discernment in how we help people. I don't encourage you to answer every request for money that lands in your inbox. The point is that we are to love sacrificially and that there are no boundaries as to whom we are to have compassion on. Human boundaries do not dictate who we do and do not help. And the Samaritan shows sacrificial love. When the teacher of the law, or the expert in the law, when he answers Jesus' question, when Jesus says, who was a neighbor? And he says, the one who showed mercy. He won't even say Samaritan, by the way. But when he says, the one who showed mercy, he literally says, the one who did mercy, the one who did mercy with him. The Samaritan is doing compassion. He is doing mercy. And it's significant that Jesus doesn't say much about the man who is the victim. There's nothing notable about him. It's just a man. And the presumption that it's the character is male is simply tied to the culture. But it invites the listeners to presume that it could be anyone. What if it was you? In fact, some people think, and I think there might be some, I think there is something to this, that Jesus is telling the parable in such a way that calls to mind an episode in 2 Chronicles 28 where the army, where the army of Judah is defeated, who the listeners would have identified with. And they are in a vulnerable position and shown mercy. 
What if it was you? He's inviting the audience to empathy, which is at the heart of compassion. Because if you are the one, half dead, on the side of the road, you probably don't care a lot for boundaries as to who should or should not help you. As I heard one put it, person put it, the question of who is my neighbor, that is a question for the victim. Who's going to be a neighbor to me? Which is why Jesus flips the question and says, who was a neighbor? The question for the passerby is, am I going to be a neighbor? And when Jesus says in response to the correct answer, go and do likewise, it calls us to consider ourselves. Am I going to be a neighbor? Because a neighbor is not just someone that a follower of Jesus is called to love. A neighbor is someone followers of Jesus are called to be. Being a neighbor is at the core of our identity. When we talked about Amos, we talked about how daunting the world's problems can be. There's no shortage of need in this world. And so we might be asking, okay, fine, but how? As I said before, I will, and I will refer you again to the, de the department in our denomination, Love, Mercy, Do Justice, who has a lot of good resources that will help us extend our reach as a neighbor. And if you want to extend that reach even farther, there's Covenant World Relief, also an organization of our denomination that we give to as a church and that I know some of you give to individually as well. They did not ask me to mention these. These are just tools at your disposal. And I encourage you to take a look at them if you're at a loss. And in conversation with the Holy Spirit of Lord, who are you calling me to be a neighbor to? And how? Who at my doorstep? Who across the street? Who on my TV screen? Who on my news feed? Jesus is our continual example of sacrificial love. And when we follow the one who died for us while we were still sinners, as the scriptures say, and who loved us before we loved him back, as the scriptures teach, and who prayed forgiveness for the one, over the ones who crucified him as they were in the process of doing so, we are not entitled to limit who we love. And so as we follow Jesus, we will know life with him now and in the life to come. As we live our faith in him by being a neighbor, let's continue worshiping our Lord.